Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, open them up to the book of Obadiah. If you don't know where that is, it's in the Old Testament, and uh, there's a table of contents in the front of your Bible that's meant to be used. So don't be embarrassed, flip to the table of contents, and then find Obadiah. And the title of this sermon is, The Kingdom Shall Be the Lord's. Well, welcome back to our short series through the shortest books of the Bible. Um, As I said, today we're going to be studying Obadiah, the shortest book in the Old Testament. Um, And it's part of what are called the minor prophets, not because they're minor in meaning or importance, but because of their size, the minor prophets. Uh, Fun fact In high school and college, I was the bassist for a Christian rock band by the name Obadiah. Um, We thought we were awesome. We were not. Um, I didn't know anything about the book of Obadiah then, uh, but I did know that the name Obadiah meant servant of the Lord or servant of Yahweh. So Obadiah means servant of the Lord, and for that reason, We actually don't know who wrote this book. Uh, There are 11 other Obadiahs mentioned in the Old Testament, and it's possible that this book isn't written by any of them. Uh, It's possible that this Obadiah is simply an unnamed person who saw himself as a servant of the Lord, relaying a message. Uh, This book was most likely written around 586 B.C., And the history of this time period will actually be really important as we begin to look through the book. Um, But before we read the text itself, some background context will be really helpful to us. Uh, The first part of Obadiah is a warning of coming judgment on Edom. Edom. So, who is Edom? Well, Edom is another name for Esau and his descendants, who would later be called Edomians. So who is Esau? Let's read Genesis 25, verses 19 through 26. Genesis 25, 19 through 26. These are the generations of Isaac, Abram, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, check this out, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The other, the older, shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were, two, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's hill, so his name was called Jacob. If you know the rest of the story of Genesis, you know how this turned out. Esau sold his birthright to Jacob. 
And then Jacob tricked his father Isaac to get the blessing instead of Esau. The rest, as they say, is history. The line of blessing or the line of God's people would follow Jacob and not Esau. Jacob would go on to be renamed what? Israel. Esau would go on to be named Edom. You can read about his genealogy in Genesis chapter 36. While the older child, Esau, did serve the younger Jacob, as prophesied, God assigned a small mountainous territory southeast of Judah to Esau's descendants as their inheritance. So I think we've got a map up here of that. So God told his people not to contend with them. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 says this. It says, Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea, as the Lord had told me. And for many days we traveled around Mount Seir. Then the Lord said to me, You have been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward and command the people. You are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir. And they will be afraid of you, so be very careful. Do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. So Israel, or Jacob, or Judah, they ended up in the Promised Land and in Jerusalem. Edom ended up in a very small but very fortified mountain range southeast of them. Well, in around 586, Jerusalem was invaded and ransacked by the Babylonians. Guess who, at best, stood by and watched, and at worst, jumped in and helped the Babylonian invaders? Edom. As the refugees fled from Jerusalem... Guess who grabbed them and turned them back over to the Babylonians? Edom. Guess who plundered and looted Jerusalem after the invasion? You guessed it. Edom. All right. With all of that as background context, let's dive into God's word. Obadiah. This is the word of the Lord. Verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to, the, to, to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. 
you have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow, and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negeb shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephathah. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negeb. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. This book can be broken down into three sections. Point one, the judgment of the Lord in verses 1 through 14. Point two, the day of the Lord in verses 15 through 18. And then point three, the kingdom of the Lord in verses 19 through 21. So that'll be our outline for today. Point one, the judgment of the Lord. Have you ever considered the question, does God have enemies? One commentator raises this question here with this book. Does God have enemies? That usually doesn't sit well with the Western secular mind or even a lot of Western Christian minds. So many think of God as only loving and never wrathful or bringing judgment. But I'll ask you, is that the God of the Bible? Does God have enemies? He does. Obadiah will show us who God is, who his enemies are, and who his friends are. Look at verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Speaking of Edom. Very important from the beginning here. 
this isn't just Obadiah's idea of who God's enemies are. It's not just a, a disgruntled Israelite spewing judgmental statements. It's a vision. This is a prophetic revelation of God himself. These are God's words. And they're primarily directed not at God's people, but at unbelievers, Edom specifically. It's a warning of judgment. God is going to partner with the nations against Edom in battle as their enemies. But why? Number one, their pride. Look at verse two. God says, Behold, I will make you, meaning Edom, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. While Edom was actually small in size, they believed themselves to be big, very big. Further, they saw themselves as unassailable or unconquerable. Why? Well, first, because of their geographic location. Uh, They lived at the top of a strategic mountain pass. One commentator notes that after the the steep descent toward the Dead Sea and the Arabah to its south, the land rises precipitously to the even higher plateau up to 5,500 feet on which Edom is situated. Land passage through this territory is often through narrow passages between towering rocks, a way that is easily blocked by a few well-placed soldiers. In other words, Edom believed that the mountains that they lived in were a mighty fortress. They believed that they couldn't be touched. They had a geographic and military advantage. Look at verse 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? But what's God's response to this? Look at verse 4. Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. In other words, Edom, you're going down. These, These enemies of God put their trust in something other than God, a mountain and their own military strategy. They didn't think that anything or anyone, including God himself, could touch them. This is the epitome of pride. But here's the problem we have with this text. Most of us wouldn't consider pride all that big of a deal. We certainly wouldn't put pride on par with theft or adultery, or drunkenness, would we? G. Campbell Morgan writes this. He says, look at it this way. Here are two statements, each of which might fall from the lips of some well-meaning church member. Referring to another person, someone says, he's a good man, but proud. Such a remark hardly strikes our ears as inappropriate or shocking. We are all too willing to admit that goodness and pride may be companions with the same life. But consider this remark, he says. He's a good man, but a thief. 
Immediately, our moral sensibilities are outraged. Hold on, we say. What do you mean? A man cannot at the same time be good and a thief. Yet in the sight of God, pride is as fully as bad as stealing, if not worse. Do we understand that pride was the sin of Satan when he fell from heaven? Isaiah 14, 14, we see Satan saying, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Pride was the sin of Adam and Eve when they chose to trust their own desires instead of God's word. James chapter 4, verse 6, God says, or it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud gives grace to the humble. Friends, God takes pride very seriously, then and now. Let's keep reading. Verses 5 and 6 in Obadiah. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed? Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, Would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. Do you see what God's saying? If if a thief breaks into your house, typically they'll steal valuables and then get out of there. They don't typically take everything. A grape thief even leaves behind a little bit. Not God. God is going to rob you of everything. Everything, Edom. He's going to take it all. And notice the tenses of these verbs. They're all past tense. Even though these events of judgment hadn't happened yet, God is speaking of them as if they were already done. There's certainty to this. Verses 7 and 8. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? Again, we know that in 586 BC, Edom partnered with Babylon to ransack their brother Jacob. They became allies with Babylon against God's people. Well, God is saying to them, those allies, Babylon, those allies are going to stab you in the back, Edom. And that's exactly what happened, by the way. Babylon ended up ransacking Edom eventually, too. Edom was actually known for their wisdom in the area. In fact, Eliphaz, one of Job's friends, was from Teman, which was in Edom. Another of Job's friends was a Shuhite, also in Edom. Edom was known throughout the region for their great wisdom. Do you see verse 8? God is saying, that, your wisdom, that won't protect you either. I'm going to destroy the wise and understanding. So, Their geography won't protect them. Their allies won't protect them. Their wisdom won't protect them. How about their own strength? 
Look at verse 9. And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Swing and a miss. Their military might won't protect them either. Then, verses 10 through 14 describe exactly what Edom did in the days that Babylon attacked the people of God. So I'll ask us this. Do we understand that actions against God's people are the same as actions against God himself? Don't believe me? Let's flip over to Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. You see that? Against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So who's, who's Saul persecuting there? God's people. Let's keep reading verses 3 to 5. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Do you see it? Saul was persecuting God's people. And Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? God so closely identifies with his people that to persecute them is to persecute him. Do you see why Edom is an enemy of God? They've opposed and persecuted God's people. Further, Do you see the warning that we're being given in this text? If you're putting your trust in anyone or anything but God, you're headed for destruction. Who or what is your mighty fortress? Is it your job or economic status? Is it your morality? Is it your intellectual ability? Is it your allies? You've got a lot of friends. Is it your national pride? None of these things will save you from the coming wrath of God for sin. Only Jesus is a mighty fortress. Only Jesus can shield you from the just wrath of God that each and every one of us deserve. Hear this. Because of our sin against a holy God, All of us, and I do mean all of us, are God's enemies. All of us deserve God's judgment, just like the Edomites. But God, through Jesus Christ, his son, has made a way for enemies to become friends. We read this earlier in John 15, didn't we? Jesus calls us, his people, friends. That's great news. That's the gospel. But how does that transformation take place? Moving people from enemies to friends. How does that happen? 
Well, simply put, through the cross of Christ. Jesus lived perfectly as a friend of God in every single way. Then he went to the cross, absorbed the full amount of judgment and wrath reserved for God's enemies. He did that as a substitute for those who would repent and believe in him. Then he was buried and rose from the grave three days later. His promises, as it turns out, weren't just talk. He backed up what he said by rising from the grave. And his righteousness gets credited to anyone who turns from sin and trusts in him. Not in their own strength, not in their own wisdom, not in their own goodness, etc. Because of that, he calls enemies friends. Isn't that amazing? In other words, there's hope for God's people, which Obadiah will get to shortly. But before he does, he turns, point two, to the day of the Lord. Verses 15 through 18. The day of the Lord. Look with me at verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. So Obadiah is turning from focusing in on Edom to all nations. It's not just Edom who needs to be warned about the coming day of the Lord. We talked about this a little bit when we were going through 1 Thessalonians. But the day of the Lord, that phrase, day of the Lord, it's a common theme throughout the Old Testament prophets, and specifically the minor prophets, which Obadiah is a part of. And the prophets often do what's called telescoping. Telescoping. And it's just like it sounds. They take one event that, that's, that's close or imminent in history and another event that's far off, and they kind of compress them together where they look almost simultaneous. We see Jesus doing this in Mark 13 in the Olivet Discourse. In this instance, Obadiah seems to be taking Edom's day of the Lord, the judgment that's coming, and collapsing it with the final day of the Lord as somewhat of a preview. This will be like that. But that day, the final day of the Lord, is going to be much, much bigger and much worse. So, what's the day of the Lord? David Baker He writes that the day of the Lord concerns a time of divine intervention in history, bringing good and blessing on those who please God and gloom and destruction on his foes. Obadiah is telling everyone that the day of the Lord is near. Isn't that interesting? How do we understand that? He was writing in 586 B.C. and saying that this day of the Lord was near. And yet here we are in 2024. How do we understand that? Well, we've got to understand it from two different angles. Number one, Edom's day of the Lord actually was near on a timeline. They were judged imminently. But two, near doesn't mean temporally near. It means it can come at any moment. Think 
physically near, or, or that it's looming over us at all times, near. That's what Obadiah is saying. He's saying, the day of the Lord is looming over us. It's near. It can come in the blink of an eye. We don't know when. It could be an hour, and it could be in a thousand years. But there's nothing stopping the day of the Lord from happening in this instant. It's near. And in that day, he says, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. In other words, there will be absolute justice in that moment. Then look at verse 16. He says, For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. Edom historically celebrated victory over Judah with the Babylonians, by drinking on Mount Zion. God's response? Great, you'll drink my wrath, you and all the nations who oppose my people. But in the same time of judgment and justice for God's enemies, there will be deliverance and mercy for God's people. Look at this, verses 17 and 18. After proclaiming judgment, verse 17, But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken." you see it? Even though God's people lost in the short run, they will be delivered. They will escape the wrath of God. They will possess their own possessions, meaning that they'll return to the land that God promised them. Once more, there was a near-term fulfillment when Israel returned from exile out of Babylon, and there's a much much more important fulfillment of this with regard to heaven, the land that God has promised us. Understand this. When when we talk about the kingdom of God, it can be a, a nebulous statement. But when we talk about the kingdom of God, we mean God's people in God's place under God's rule. God's people in God's place under God's rule. When we say God's place, we're not ultimately talking about the physical promised land. We're talking about heaven. Hebrews chapter 11, speaking of of the people of faith, says this. Hebrews 11 verses 14 through 16 says, For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So Obadiah, again, is saying both to the enemies of God and to God's people. He's saying, 
God will provide a way of escape for his people. He'll bring them back into his land. And that brings us to the final point. Point three, the kingdom of the Lord. The kingdom of the Lord, verses 19 through 21. Those of the Negeb shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host, of the people of Israel, shall possess the land of the Canaanites, as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem, who are in Shepharad, shall possess the cities of the Negeb. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Without getting too far down into the weeds, what's being said here is that there's going to be a reunion of the 12 tribes and a new conquest of the promised land. The unity of God's covenant people. All of these people from different places coming back together in unity. And the last line of this book, I think, is the most important. The kingdom shall be whose? The Lord's. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. God's people will be delivered. They'll be unified. They'll be in God's place. And the Lord will be king. He'll sovereignly and graciously rule forever. That's the kingdom of God, which brings us to an important point. With with the coming of Christ, there's an already, but a not yet, aspect to the kingdom of God. And I want to draw your attention to a story of two different kings. King number one was a man who had a lot of earthly power. King number two had very little earthly power, according to most. King number one actually tried to kill king number two very early in his life, but failed. Who are these kings? King number one is King Herod. King number two, King Jesus. Oh, and by the way, do you know who were King Herod's descendants? The Edomites. An Edomite king trying to destroy God's chosen one. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like the book of Obadiah. But Christ is king. His kingdom was inaugurated when he came to this earth already. He came as a baby, lived as a friend of God 100% of the time, was killed on a Roman cross, drinking the full cup of God's wrath for us. But he rose victoriously to be enthroned forever as God's chosen king, to rule and reign as our sovereign. He is our mighty fortress. He is our only hope in life and death. He is our God, our savior, our friend. Obadiah is a story, surprisingly, that points to Christ. Obadiah is a book of warning and a book of comfort. A book of warning to those who take refuge in anyone or anything but God. Hebrews 10, 26-27 says this, 
says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains for a, a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. If you oppose Christ and oppose his people, you are an enemy of God and judgment will come. The day of the Lord is looming and may come at any moment. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ as your only hope and security. Obadiah is meant to be a book of warning to you. But it's also a book of comfort for God's people. If you have taken refuge in Christ, you have been already, and you will be, not yet, delivered. You are safe and secure with Christ as your king on Mount Zion. A God of justice and a God of mercy at the same time through the cross. That's the message of Obadiah. And in that, we rest and rejoice. God's glory in salvation through judgment. Let's pray.